Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients and their families because inefficiencies, overwork and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified and just for everyone involved. Yes. All right, people. Today is minicast number two, and I'm talking with Shannon Fernando. And this kid, he's an ER and ICU fellow, i.e. he's still training, and he's produced over 50 papers. And today we discuss... His most recent BMJ paper called Pre-Arrest and Intra-Arrest Prognostic Factors Associated with Survival After In-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. This was produced in the BMJ. What does this all mean? We are discussing if you die in hospital, what are your chances of recovering? What it means to have those discussions with our patients how it helps clinicians to have these discussions after looking at the factors associated with this paper. I think, and I'm hoping this is a bit practice changing, and I'm also proud that he's doing the work he's doing and producing papers in the BMJ, which is like the Super Bowl of papers, if that makes sense. Have a listen to this, and uh, hope you enjoy the show. We are here at the Ottawa Hospital with the one and only Shannon Fernando, Resource Optimization Network All-Star. How you feeling, big man? I'm good, man. Thanks for thanks for having me here. <laughs> Yo, man, it's it's kind of a privilege when somebody that you've seen grow up, like how many papers do we have together now? I think uh, we just actually counted this. It's like 20 now. Actually, 20, 20 something, 20 yeah, something. Yeah, and I'm, I, I'm proud to say that uh, Shannon is here today to talk about his second BMJ publication in 2019, which, by the way, for those that are not in the medical field, that is straight up balling. It is straight up gangster. Are you getting your second BMJ publication? And I, I'm, I'm going to say this because you're not going to say this yourself. You have to be the most productive, uh, not only fellow, but critical care researcher in 2019. I, I mean... I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I'm gonna uh, say it. I'm gonna say it. We have we have uh, we have a really good team. Uh, obviously, Quadro, as everybody knows, uh, we got uh, Bram Rochberg at McMaster. Got a lot of great yeah, yeah. Uh, supporters, and and honestly, none of this work uh, would be done without them. So I, I look at it like seriously, like a team, because ain't no way that I'm doing this by myself. But oh, I appreciate but, it. Man. I mean, you're I being too uh, modest, but right. listen, I want, we're here to talk about um, your second BMJ paper, which is on in hospital cardiac arrests and prognostic factors. So talk to us about this study. Right. So I think the reason we did this study is, I don't know how many people actually know this, but anytime you get admitted to, you know, certainly the Ottawa Hospital and many other hospitals, you will get asked by the physicians who care for you, you know, what the, what the plan is in the event of cardiac arrest. And I think you and I have both discussed this so many times, certainly in the ICU, that there's really no good way that people go about doing this. And mm. uh, it's one of the, the, the hardest conversations because you've maybe discussed about this patient coming in for their pneumonia or whatever. And then you say, oh, yeah, by the way, before <laughs> we admit you to hospital, you know, if your heart were to stop, 
what do you want us to do, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a difficult conversation. Uh, Doctor Digilio touched on this in his first in the first time he in the first podcast of this, mm-hmm. uh, where he said, you know, there are a lot of lot of problems with it in the sense that it takes time to do it. Mm-hmm. You feel like you're going to hurt that doctor patient relationship like right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, but the truth is, it, you know, it's a very very important question, even though a lot of people think of it as kind of run of the mill. Because unfortunately, you know, patients can deteriorate in hospital, and then they encounter us in the ICU. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we hope that these conversations have been had, but as we often find, they haven't really, you know, they're very superficial. And so, you know, the truth is there's two things you really have to understand about people. You know, the first thing is, especially patients, uh, they have very minimal understanding of medicine. So when you walk into a room and talk to a patient about cardiac arrest, you're automatically making an assumption that they know what that means mm-hmm. or what CPR is. And when you say CPR, immediately, I guarantee you, most patients' minds flash to television. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, seeing their heart stop, getting shocked. And most people have no concept of what the survival is after cardiac arrest. Right. So we, we talk about this as a big paper in New England Journal, you know, 20 years ago, somebody just watched TV, medical TV, <laughs> and they looked to see what's the likelihood that somebody who goes into cardiac arrest survives to hospital discharge. And it was 67 percent or 70 percent, right. which is we all know crazy, impossible. Mm. Right. I mean, realistically, most of the studies report that if you survive, Uh, Or if you survive a cardiac arrest to discharge is about 10 to 15%. And we're just talking about survival, which I think most people don't really care about. They care about good survival, like survival with, you know, being independent. And uh, what what we know is that number is even way less than 10 to 15%. So first of all, you're coming at this idea of, well, people aren't you know, aren't understanding of this, uh, what cardiac arrest is or, you know, what that means and what their likelihood of survival is. But then, so then people start saying, well, you know, we'll tell them, you know, there's a 10 to 15% chance that you're going to survive to discharge. Right. And then the other thing you really need to learn about people is that people are very, very bad at understanding risk. So what that means is, you know, it, most people, and this is not just patients, but it, most people are more afraid to get on a plane than they are to get in a car, mm-hmm. even though you're way more likely to die in a car accident than in a plane crash because people just perceive risk differently. It's what they see. It's what they, they think is real. Um, and so when you tell people that there's a 10 to 15% chance that they'd survive, some people, most people would say, well, no thanks. But some people would say, maybe I'm going to be in that 10 to 15%. Yeah, one out of 10. One out of 10 chance, right? And so yeah. that was the reason we did this study was to look and see what are the risk factors that will predict if you're actually going to survive before you even have a cardiac arrest. So those factors that are really to us completely unchangeable, right? Right. Your age, your sex, your medical conditions that you have when you come into hospital, the reason you come into hospital, those things we cannot change. Mm-hmm. Um, whether we do preventative care or we do downstream critical care, we can't right. change your outcome. And we just wanted to associate that with the likelihood of survival. And what we found, you know, unsurprisingly, was that most of those things, especially increased age and particular comorbidities like cancer, for example, are strongly associated with death after Mm -hmm. cardiac arrest. Um, And then we went on to look at sort of factors that happened during the cardiac arrest. So if if somebody saw the patient have a cardiac arrest, if somebody saw, um, you know, or the initial rhythm was something that could shock, those kind of things. And mm-hmm. so we know when the absence of those really predictive factors, again, survival is, is very minimal. Mm-hmm. And so the reason for doing the study was that, was to be able to provide clinicians with information they could give to patients. Because I think most of us have seen these conversations happen with patients and cringe when you see it. And I think, you know, if you really want to trigger me, walk into a patient room and ask, tell the patient about, you know, we we need to know what happens in the event of cardiac arrest and then ask the patient, what do you want us to do? That is 
probably the worst way that you could frame that question. And I'm coming at this from the perspective of residents, so the understanding I don't have as much experience as you or Dr. Digidio or people who have discussed this or Dr. Downer, but I think, you know, hearing all of you speak about it, it seems like this is the way things are, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so what you really, you would never do that with any other medical condition. You'd never sit down with somebody who's newly diagnosed with lung cancer and say, you have lung cancer, what do you want us to do, mm -hmm. right? You would, you would provide some information, you would provide an idea of prognosis, uh, and then you would make a recommendation. And what this study does is it gives you sort of a starting point, some level of information um, to provide to a patient. And I think that's where the value is, and that's why I think it ended up, ending, ended up in, the, in the BMJ. Wow, absolutely. And just to reinforce too for the listener, like when we say cardiac arrest, that means you have died. You know, if you're you're literally you have no pulse. You you are you're you've, you're currently passed away, and these are attempts to bring you back to life. Um, maybe we could talk a bit about where do you see this? Like, do you see this changing practice in any way? Like, in terms of discussions that uh, clinicians might have with patients, or from a patient perspective, do you see this being practice changing? I, I think so, you know, and I, and I think in, in, you know, a modest way, but I think it does. One of the things from the patient perspective, uh, one of the things that BMJ made us do, and we were really clear, like we didn't think of this on our own, the BMJ made us, you remember, go yeah. to patients and show them this paper and say, like, what do you think about it? Um, does, did you know about this? And if you didn't know about this, you know, would this change your mind? And all the patients unanimously said, A, they didn't know about this. Mm -hmm. And B, 100% absolutely this information is useful. Um, because the picture of cardiac arrest is not what people think, right? Again, if people go back to TV, you're shocked, you come back. You know, the truth is, and we all know, a very, very, very small proportion of cardiac arrest that happen in hospital are actually will get shocked. Mm -hmm. In fact, when the treatment of cardiac arrest is very, very algorithmic, you know, it's very, very, you know, protocolized. It's yeah. just a protocol that we follow and, and patients should know that. And so if you manage to get a pulse back, that patient then goes to the ICU where they stay for days and weeks where we try and see if there's any kind of neurological recovery. And in the majority of cases, there isn't. Right. And and the most people actually die from cardiac cardiac arrest if they don't die right away. Most of them with, die from withdrawal of life support yeah. by the family deciding, you know what, this is probably never the state that they could have wanted to be in. Mm -hmm. And so the whole point of this is so that we can attack this upstream, right? We can try and avoid that whole process by simply doing what we're supposed to do as physicians, I think, which is provide patients with information mm -hmm. so that they can make decisions. You're getting consent for a therapy, right? The first element of consent is it has to be informed. Right. So a patient has to be informed. Look, this is the likelihood that you're going to survive. And these are the factors that are kind of working against you. Mm -hmm. And then it should all culminate in a recommendation, just like you would with any other therapy. I recommend that in this case, we don't do CPR. Mm -hmm. Because if we were to, A, there's a high likelihood you would die. And B, if you survived, there's an even higher likelihood that you would have very, very poor neurological outcome mm -hmm. and live to the quality of life you, you had. And, and I think for us, when we meet with patients, our goal is to try and get some understanding of their values. And I think all of us unanimously and, and the patients that we've, we've encountered, not all, almost unanimously, almost all patients value quality of life more than quantity of life. Mm -hmm. They don't care about the length of time they're alive. They care about how good their life is when they're alive. And uh, I think that that's a pretty, pretty much, you know, across the country, uh, you could say that, and, and certainly around most parts of the world. And so I think when you have these kind of discussions with patients and you provide this information, I think it's practice changing from that perspective. It gives patients a real understanding. And your job as a physician 
is the same, right? I think so many times physicians walk away from these these encounters with patients and they say, wow, that was, I didn't expect that they would want everything done. Mm-hmm. Well, then you have to go back and wonder, like, did you actually properly tell yeah, them? How did you frame yeah, it? Yeah, how did you, did you tell them that? Uh, did you tell them that the likelihood of, you know, survival is so low and that the likelihood is would be poor? And so, you know, the truth is we don't. We just cursorily discuss this with patients. Mm-hmm. And uh, it goes back to what Dr. Digidio was saying. People don't want to take the time. Um, but I, you know, I think the, the payoff is the best thing for the patient is to discuss this upfront. And I think that's where the value of this comes in terms of trying to change practice. Mm-hmm. Um, from a clinician perspective, I think one of the actual areas of value, uh, especially if we can speak in the Ontario context, uh, Dr. Downer just recently published a paper in the CMAJ, um, talking about non-beneficial CPR and the previous requirement that we had to provide CPR regardless of our belief about whether it would be beneficial or not. And now that that's changed uh, and clinicians don't necessarily need to do that. So this, again, provides information to clinicians that they can quickly sort of put together at the bedside and say there are a lot of risk factors. And the important caveat with the study, and we said it in the study, is we actually don't know how these factors interact. Mm-hmm. So you can't per, like perfectly risk stratify somebody, but it's just like any other risk factors, right? You add them all up, you're probably going to get a worse prognosis, yeah. right? And I don't think anybody would think any differently. And so from that perspective, I think for a clinician, knowing whether or not to pursue CPR in the event of a cardiac arrest or whether you think it's going to be beneficial, this helps and exactly, you know, it's, the timing is actually quite fortuitous uh, that it, it helps in, in making that decision. Right. Yes, Shannon, I couldn't agree more. I think I'm hoping this will help with decision making. And I love the fact that the Downer paper came out this week also to kind of continue with that theme of really asking ourselves, what's the appropriate course of action? And um, I don't I don't know if. This needs to be said, but even when we talk about what CPR looks like, you know, we talked a lot about what it appears to be on television. And I, you and I both can attest to this, that real life CPR, especially in people that are frailer, that fra- frailer, that's not a word, people that are frail and people that are um, older, um, it is not pretty at all. And it's not an exaggeration when we say at times where you're you're cracking ribs during this time period, you're urgently trying to get a, a an endotracheal tube or a breathing tube in. It's it's it could be quite undignifying. I agree completely. And I think you know on the topic of frailty, we just published that paper oh, yeah. uh, coming out in resuscitation. Look at that segue. Look at that week, segue. What we, we looked at we looked at frailty. You know, and yeah. and frailty is this thing that's sort of gaining understanding because it almost combines a lot of the things that we talked about. You know, age, accumulation of comorbidities, it decreased ability from a physiological perspective to to recuperate. And, you know, our study is almost 200 frail patients that have had cardiac arrest here at the Ottawa Hospital. Yep. And I think the numbers were staggering. It was like six people actually survived to leave hospital and only one out of the 200 actually went home. It's right. like a home setting, right? And I think that if you presented patients with those numbers that, you know, first of all, there's a high likelihood that you're going to die either at the scene or in the ICU. Um, and then if you survive, there's a five out of six chance, at least based on our data, that you're going to end up in a long-term care facility where you may be severely disabled. Mm-hmm. I can't, you know, I, I, and I think the most studies have backed this up. Most patients, when provided with that information, make, I think, the appropriate decision to say, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't want that. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, that's one of the important take-homes from this is these factors are sort of gaining an understanding and we're moving away from an era um, that, you know, where 
patients, uh, you know, physicians are paternalistic to an area where we're involving patients more in our care. And I think that that's great. And I think that's mm -hmm. important. But part of that is informing patients about the options and what that means, yeah. just like you would for anything. Else. What's real. What's real. You know what yeah. I mean? Accurate information. Listen, buddy, I want to thank you for doing this. I want to really give you props on the amount of work that you're doing, the amount of publications, getting the word out there on, on the, you know, the importance of, um, and the life care discussions and, and so on. And, uh, you know, wh wherever you land, someone's going to be quite lucky to have you, buddy. Thanks, man. Appreciate you having me on. That was great. Absolutely. Take care. Couple last things. Hope you enjoyed that episode and enjoying this format, uh, the mini cast format. We are once again sponsored by BetterHelp, a great organization that does online counseling. Click on the link on the show notes to get more information about them. You can follow us at Quadcast on Twitter and on um, our Facebook page. Comments, please send them to quadcast99 at gmail.com. You know, subscribe, give us a five star review. We're loving doing this and uh, stay tuned next week for another fantastic episode. Peace, y'all.